Hello and welcome to It Starts With Beer. I'm your host, Will Sis. And on this episode, I speak with Tony Russo, the man behind the Beer With Strangers podcast and a variety of other projects, including an intriguing true crime story. It Starts With Beer is a member of the Hopped Up Network. If you'd like to contact me or advertise on the podcast, send an email to beer.snob at yahoo.com. So Tony has been in the podcasting game for more than 10 years, primarily related to beer, but also delving into stories of veterans and the life of writers. Among other things, we talk about the insight he's gained from interviewing beer book authors from around the country. Stay tuned after our interview for the after party when I go off the rails due to sleeping about eight hours over the last five days. But first, in honor of his Beer with Strangers podcast, I named the virtual bar that we meet in Pub Strange, complete with eerie cyberspace music prior to our entry. Let's listen in. Tony, as you can see, uh, we're standing in front of this virtual pub. I, I see that you got the, the virtual uh, reality headgear. Is it fit okay? It does. It does. Everything is in super 3D. So that's Thank you. You noticed that, right? This is something that it's enhanced. Uh, we're standing in front of what I call Pub Strange. And this is in honor of you and your podcast, Beer with Strangers. Everything about this place is strange but you know i'm uh, helping raise a uh, an eight month old so i haven't put a lot of time into this i just kind of went with what i thought was strange at the moment so uh, we're standing outside as you can see it's in the shape of a giant octopus it's got uh, 100 shades of purple is that strange enough yeah and, and purple enough too which is which is good for me. It, it's got, it, it will damage the retina if we continue to stare at it, so we're not yeah. going to for much longer. As going we're, inside where it's dark. Yeah, we're going inside exactly right through, right through <laughs> uh, the tentacle doors. Okay, and uh, we're gonna head straight to the bar because I've got so many things that I want to talk to you about. You were born in New Jersey. Speaking of strange, can you yes. can you? T- and I can say that as a fellow New Jerseyan. Can you take me from that moment of your birth up until your uh, your journalism career? I grew up like equidistant between Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi. So you want to give me a, a date around what around what time? Yeah, no, I was born. Actually, I was born in Jersey City, October 1970. So I'm celebrating my 50th birthday. Happy birthday! Hoping like hell I get to celebrate my 51st. <laughs> uh, and uh and yeah i grew up in you know a suburban suburban new jersey like everyone else including the boss himself i was like you know screw this let's go someplace where it sucks less um but i guessed wrong and i went to a place where it sucked more oh there is another place where's that <laughs> <laughs> which is which is not quite as strange as the eyeballs go jar. 
Oh, yep. Here at the bar. I, I know. I don't know what that's all about. I, you know, I put that together. There's a lot of eyeballs in here. Again, I was just kind of spitballing, just saying, what's strange? Eyeballs swinging from the chandelier. It's strange. Right. <laughs> um, and so now I, I live and work on the Eastern Shore. I got into journalism by accident. I wanted to be a philosophy professor. I ended up getting a divorce instead. And so I had to find a way that I could make a living. Um, but my degree was in philosophy. I have two degrees. I have one in philosophy and one in history because I know where the money is. Oh, yeah. And so, <laughs> and so the only uh, the only thing that was really open to me was writing. It's the only thing that I could do well enough for here. And again, I live in rural Maryland now. So I live just outside of a beach town. The beach town is Ocean City, Maryland. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I worked as a journalist for a little while. And early on, I realized that podcasting was the future. So I've been making podcasts for more than 10 years at this point probably something like 13 i think 2007 is when i made my first podcast that's cool i mean beer with strangers is not your only podcast but that's the one that we for the sake of uh mine uh that i care about however i would love to delve into this is war and so Mm. what's your story among others uh so uh, you know but just you know just so my listeners know you're very you're very busy um, uh, for those who haven't heard it yet, how would you describe Beer with Strangers? Well, Beer with Strangers is a show about beer history and culture. It is a morphed show because I keep trying to make it into something that people like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and something I like that, that yeah. I like. And early on, I had a partner and we had a great show. And I talk about beer news and he talked about home brewing and his name is Doug Griffith. Yes. And he is um, like a, a beer genius. He was one of the people that helped literally helped build dogfish, like went in and started, you know, nailing things. Wow. Um, Speaking of strange. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and he was um, everything that, you know, he forgot is more than most people knew that kind of, that kind of break that we just had a great time, but then he got old and he said, I'm, I'm done with, this and I'm retiring um, and so I had to reimagine the show and so I reimagined it a couple of different ways that didn't really work mm. but then more recently I've tried to make it a uh, beer history show yes that's a place where I can still be very interested in beer when as as you know if you're not on top of the industry pretty closely it just changes so much and so fast and my other paying jobs you know my my day job um just didn't allow me to do what i wanted to do with the show i had gotten to a point where i was doing like a narrative history show Mm. and i think i did two or three of those but they they are very very difficult to produce and they take a long time so i'm going to go back to just interviewing people like yourself who are beer historians of a specific area so, so far, I've interviewed people from Idaho, uh, Michigan, um, outside of Chicago, and a couple other ones. I have a couple more in the pipe. Um, I'm going to re- reboot the show starting in January. I'm actually closing it down to do another quick retune. I, I have a book coming out in the spring, and oh. the, rest, the rest of the year is going to be kind of devoted to finishing up my book. And then starting in January, I love talking about beer history. It's just so much fun. I love everybody's got a cool story. I know this is your show. Do you have a show, a story that you haven't told on this show that's a cool 
representation of Connecticut's beer history, like like a cool story from the history of Connecticut. So, for example, one of the things that I told, because I went on a barnstorming library tour after the book came out for years, and I would often talk about a man named Israel Putnam, who was the, the uh, owner of a tavern in what is known as Brooklyn, Connecticut, and he was not only a uh, tavern keeper, but he was also the head of their militia. So this was on a po- what they called the post road between Boston and uh, Norwich, Connecticut. And so I like to you know give them the the image of this the idea of that this is where revolution was kind of starting. But in terms of like a really cool story about, you know, the chicken that fell in the fermenter and then they, they became this, you know, amazing beer or something like that. Not really, but there were a few characters that popped up that if I could do it again, I would go back and spend years, you know, really just delving through to, to enrich that history section. And that's what I that's what that's what I'm interested in. But I'm also interested in, you know, what was going on in the 90s. So, you know, I speaking of um uh, nothing, because I don't have a segue for this. But your, the origin story of why you called it Beer with Strangers was kind of interesting. I heard that on a, a recent episode of yours. I think it's called Turn the Tables, where you were talking yes. instead of being the guest, which I'm going to force you to be uh, for this one, because I know it's hard. You, you want to just, you know, uh, be the question uh, asker, which I hope you do. But the idea yeah. is, what, tell me about why, why, what was Beer with Strangers supposed to be? Well, the idea was that at the, in the earliest part of the craft beer revolution, so really like, well, the most recent one, blah, 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 let's say 2010. Yes. Um, 2009, 2010. I said, we, you know, we were having these breweries locally open up beyond Dogfish. We were, we had about six breweries at the time. And I thought it would be cool to walk into them and sit down next to somebody and talk to them about beer sure but people are really bad at being interviewed <laughs> well and especially after a couple of uh, high gravity you know stouts i don't know the other thing that was always so frustrating for me and it remained frustrating and remains actually frustrating because again in in rural america people are still confused about podcasts and no one like no one got what i was doing sure. it wasn't just that they were awful at talking it was also that they were awful at understanding you know it was like i don't so what do you do with this so you put it on a blog it was it was so because i mean by 2010 i you know was an avid podcast listener and i really thought that podcasts were going to explode by 2010 i was absolutely wrong but that's what i thought so unfortunately it was just an, an untenable kind of show because i couldn't get people on the show and then as you may have discovered if you've tried to interview brewers you know getting brewers on the phone and getting them to pay attention and not eat while they talk is also not you know a great thing to do which is why it was fantastic to have doug as a partner Mm. and then after because he didn't eat yeah just because just because he was taking it seriously and also you know it was an opportunity i mean honestly to promote his business one of the best things that I learned from Doug was he would do experimental batches where he would change the yeast or he would change the fermentation. 
and serve both beers. Like I, these, this is the same beer with two different yeasts, mm. you know, or this is the same beer, one on nitro, one on CO2. Oh, nice. And he would have, and he would have them both there for people to taste when they were coming to learn about beer and to shop for beer equipment and stuff. And the yeast thing blew my mind. It, it was genuinely like two different beers and i was there when he boiled it he boiled one batch and then split it and did five gallons of uh five gallons of one yeast and five gallons of another and that just it was fun to listen to it was fun to participate in and i think people got a kick out of that but when that went away that's when i eventually decided to try to go back to the history part because that's something i can talk about and something that i think is cool i don't need to hear a lot of other shows without shitting on anybody, you know, that is like, you know, this is my opinion of this beer for the next hour, right? I right. I, I want to do a, a half hour, maybe 40 minutes. Um, if it goes an hour, it goes an hour, but I think it should have to earn its hour spot. And during that time, I'd like people to say, oh, that's cool. Now I know something about, you know, the history of Louisville beer or whatever. Yes, so you kind of taken on this role of, of almost like... Um armchair traveler type thing you're saying i'm gonna you, you know you know you, you don't have to get on a plane and go to louisville or go to alaska i'm gonna get you the most informed person from that state and it's gonna be like you know you get to hang out with them for a while and and vicariously travel to this region that you may not ever get to which i think is right. very cool but as an author yourself because you wrote two history press books uh, eastern shore uh, beer in uh, 14 and Delaware beer in 16. How did writing these books inform your approach to interviewing uh, on your podcast? Well, first of all, especially if they're a history press <laughs> author, um, they're they're familiar with disappointment. Just in case anybody is not in on this, uh, history press um, is one that kind of reached out to a lot of us around you know the mid uh, teens and said, hey, you want to write a book? And we did. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I saw mine in a, in a Walgreens recently. So, yeah, no, you know, it's, it's, they're it out It still there. feels cool to see. I'll, I'll be honest, I got $200 last week. There you which go. Was, which was nice to get. You can buy a microphone with that. <laughs> Almost. Almost. You can, buy half, you, can do, you can do a down payment on a microphone. <laughs> but um, what was, as, as, as you were pointing out, what was difficult was we all came out with these books at the same time. So, you know, it was harder to kind of get out. And I mean, you know, the idea is who cares about Maryland beer unless they're in Maryland. And my hope was that actually everyone who's not in Maryland might. Mm -hmm. But there was no one's going to spend $70 a year on history beer books, right? So they, uh, I get, I still get emails from them like, you know, buy a hundred books, pay for 30. And I'm like, no, I, I already have a hundred books. They're right here. They're dusty. I'll sell them <laughs> back to you. Well, I, as, um, I, as I was mentioning to somebody, I, you know, I, I did mine five years ago and I said, I'm not so happy with the, with the history section, but now the whole book is history because there were only 23 yeah. breweries in the state and now there are 118. <laughs> well, my worst, and so Eastern Shore beer is actually still pretty good and mostly accurate only two of the beer only two of the rest only two of the breweries in there have closed oh, but nice. the delaware beer is, is you know genuinely i i just did another podcast uh, a couple months ago uh genuinely not worth reading 
It's no. not only not only are the not, are the breweries not really there, but it also had the unfortunate coincidence of History Press merging with Arcadia Press. But they they also had started doing a beer book section. Mm. So John Metcalf, who is a better historian than I am, also came out with Delaware beer. His came out from Arcadia in August. And mine came out from History Press in November. Oh, head to head. Yeah, and and his is is if you if you're interested in the history of Delaware beer, his is genuinely better. I have one interesting factoid in mine. He has seven thousand in his. And again, you know, most of my beers, most of my most several of those breweries are gone now or have moved on. So yours is like a glorified coaster at this point. It really is. It's it's tough. It's tough to see him. But so yeah, so now I've moved on to different books. So I have a, a true crime book coming out in March that I'm very excited about. So 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 when when you're talking to these authors, what are you finding after? I mean, we at least thirty, right? You've talked to. You know, it seems like you you talked to quite a few. Are you noticing a pattern in their stories? I mean, you're you're really kind of filtering through this history of American beer, modern history too. Are you seeing a through line with oh, either yeah. all of them or similarities by region? What are you seeing? There is a through line, and the through line is American uh, colonial beer was garbage. Colonial beer got better. The Germans came. <laughs> they could all have a chapter called, and then the Germans came. Uh, yeah, the Germans came and changed the game, prohibition, and then the rise of the, the the fall of big beer and the rise of craft the the fall of regional beers and the rise of craft brewing um, in the south it's interesting because I never realized until I started speaking with with uh, writers down there I didn't know I didn't realize how much of a racial component prohibition had in the south really um, yes because they were just trying to keep the black people from being happy. It's just, it's really yeah. kind of like they, to, to use it as, they use prohibition as a means of control in a way that I hadn't done, and I ha- that I hadn't understood. And that's why they still have more, you'll find way more stringent laws about uh, beer and brewing generally in the South. And they still, it still does have a racial component to it, which was was fascinating and flabbergasted. Was it um, uh, like Alabama? Uh, where, whereabouts do, have you have you heard evidence of, of that? Oh yeah, no, pick pick one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mississippi, <laughs> done, all of them. Yeah, I have one that hasn't come out. That is, I think Asheville hasn't come out yet. But Asheville was one. And there was one in Alabama that was one. And even in Florida, there sure. were there were there were some stories about that. So that's it, it's it's interesting because it's one of those bells that can't be unrung. You know, once you once you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, that's obvious. obvious and now yeah. I have to know that for the rest of my life. You know, it's it's not it doesn't un it's not something you say. Well, times are different now. You can see how it affects people going forward and. The larger picture is you can see how it's really more of a class thing sure. than a race thing. But by keeping it a race thing, you can make uh, lower class white people feel like they still have skin in the game. Yes. Um, while they obviously don't. The opportunities are lost uh, on entire generations and that just doesn't turn on a dime. 
uh, just yeah. because you have an Instagram account and uh, <laughs> you, you suddenly have a lot of followers. That's going to not reverse history. And uh, uh, there are a lot of people who are working, well, maybe not a lot, but there are a lot, enough key people working to, to change that. That it, it, I think that story is part of this boom, you know, this, this real ramp up of breweries. It's not just that it's in sheer numbers, but there's diversity there as well. Right, absolutely. And you started out with that homebrew focus, and now it's more of a you know, regional history focus. Um, what, what would you say that you've learned along the way about beer in general? Because I don't, you don't come across as a person who's a know-it-all, uh, <laughs> although maybe you are. Uh, what, what, what have you learned along the way that, that would you say you know, really sticks with you? What I've learned is that I, I like people who are lightened up more than I like people who are true believers. Um, I guess that comes, that comes with everything. Um, I've learned that there's nothing I can do to keep people from drinking juicy IPAs, which is unfortunate. And I've, I've learned that I've learned how little you have to know to come across as a beer expert. Mm. You know, um, one of the things I talk about in the show, and I think I've already mentioned is I don't like to talk about like flavors and things like that. I think that, you know, as craft beer has grown, it's very cool if you know what hops, if you can taste what hop is in a, a particular beer. I think that's super cool. And I don't, I, I wish I could do it. I can't. Um, but I also think that it's more important than ever to remain inclusive. And I feel like there is this kind of esoteric knowledge that, you know, this tastes like this because of this that people are kind of clinging to in a geekier way than I would like. I was so fortunate because people are always like, you know, they ask me about brewing beer and I have never brewed a batch of beer with my own hands by Mm -hmm. myself ever. I hung out with some of the best beer makers, certainly in the region, possibly on the planet. And they, why, you know, they made great beer and they told me, I repeated the words that they said, you know, I didn't, come up with them on my own so hanging out with people who liked beer and talking about it gave me insights if you're interested in beer and you're fortunate enough to find someone who knows what they're talking about and is willing to talk to you like you're a person you know a lot of times there's this some people are like all right well you must be an expert so i'm going to say all these expert things to you and i think if we can normalize the way we talk about beer I think that we can still get more people to give it a shot and enjoy one one of the key texts in my history for getting into writing about beer was garrett oliver's the brewmaster's table and what i loved about that was that he really drew out some language that was not as you mentioned esoteric he really just appealed to the senses in a way that anyone who's ever eaten a slice of bread could understand. Uh, he was right. just making it accessible that way. And I think that's a really good point. I think in this environment where people strive to set themselves apart from others because it's, so, it's getting a little more crowded, that it's kind of like being the, being the one that you know, has the advanced Cicerone degree and can tell you about it. Uh, has a place certainly, but it can get it can get a little 
you know, uh, geeky and isolating. Yeah, I, I mean, and we all know other professionals. And the example I like to, uh, I like to throw out there are uh, physicists, right? If you ask a physicist how something works, they're going to explain it to you in a way that they know you'll understand, but they're not going to be insulting about it. Right. My uh, my daughter and my son-in-law are both, you know, professional mathematicians, and they can say, this works like this because of this. And then you're like, oh, all right, I get that. So people, people can do it. People who know way more important things than what hot characteristics are coming out can make it so other people understand. So if, if, if we could do that more in beer, that would make me very happy. So um, is there a region of the country that, or the world, because I don't know if you've extended your um, interviews outside of the country yet, that really fascinates you uh, when it comes to beer? Well, I mean, obviously you want Belgium, right? Belgium, Germany. Mm-hmm. So just put them on the list and leave them there. Um, I spoke with a guy in British Columbia, um, Joe Weedy, I think is his name. And he made me want to go to British Columbia in a way that, I mean, lots of people made, everyone I talked to, especially about the travel stuff, they all made a really good pitch, but I would love to get to BC. And I'd like to get to... I think Louisville was the other one that had like a really kind of up and coming but quiet beer scene mm. where you could go and enjoy yourself but not be, you know, like Asheville. I'm not going to. I mean, if I'm if I'm in Asheville, I'll have beer, but you know, as that is too much of a beer destination. For me. That is that right? is a mecca. Yeah, <laughs> Sierra Nevada there, and then everybody else, and yeah, it's it's intense. They they know their beer like like. Portland knows their beer. Yeah, yeah. So I would rather these smaller places, like like I said, Louisville and Austin. I'm sure is might be might be a might be too big as well. But Austin, I think, really appealed to me. I spoke with some guys out there. But yeah. So top is I think you know outside of you know Belgium and uh, Munich, I would say uh, I'd say BC because just because he made he just if you have a chance to listen to the episode. Um, if you're listening to this and you would like to listen to the episode, I'd appreciate it. Uh, he just really knows his stuff about why you like to go there. You know, he doesn't talk a lot about, you know, these are the breweries. This is what they do well. This is, you know, where you can get some good food. But he just made British Columbia sound so much more attractive than I had ever considered it. So, so now that my daughter's in Washington, maybe I'll uh, take that opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I try to get out of people that are in a region that I'm not is what makes that beer particularly of that location. Because in Connecticut anyway, we're kind of known as part of the New England IPA scene. And that flavor, the flavor that comes across from that is pure tropicalia. It's not, it doesn't taste like Connecticut. There's no nutmeg for example right have, have you talked to anybody or have you experienced a beer yourself maybe locally that you say oh you know what this is of that earth so to speak or it really brings out the very local vibe well i have a working theory that no one likes um so you can you can also feel free to not like it and it won't hurt my feelings 
But my claim is that beer has no terroir. Okay. Um, okay. And there are several reasons for that. The, the, the main reason is because you can do whatever you want to the water. Mm. Uh, a local brewery around here had awful, awful water. And what they ended up having to do was strip it and then replace the minerals. And rather than just replace the minerals generically, they replaced them to style. So if they wanted, you know, an English, you know, pale ale, then they replaced it with English water minerals, you know? Mm. So that's, that's one reason. And another reason is it's more about how the cultural attitude comes through in, in, in the beer. I mean, you're not going to go any place. I mean, if, if I, if you pick, uh, Oh, I went to a really nice uh, brewery in Cheyenne, by the way. Okay. You sound surprised. I can't remember the name of it. I thought I had the name of it at the tip of my head. But yeah, no. Well, I was was a little surprised, but you walk into this brewery in Cheyenne, and guess what? They're going to have a New England IPA. They're going to have a West Coast IPA. You know, they're going to have a a brown ale. They're going to have a Pilsner. You know, you can expect the same six or eight beers with local variants at any brewery so for me it's more about what the what the scene is like whether the people are cool or whether they're too cool or whether they're anti-beer you know what i mean i do those are the things that interest me about a beer culture and about a beer region more than say uh a vermont new england ipa as opposed to a texas new england IPA. then what really matters about the the interviews that one of the things that matter about the interviews that you're doing and even looking back at that series from a history press in Arcadia is that it's not so much about the scene today it's about that history are there any stories that pop out at you from the the readings that you have done and the interviews that you've uh, conducted that you said oh wow that that that's a real uh, that, that is unique to that region uh, as part of the history, maybe going back to uh, pre-prohibition, for example. I'm sure there, I'm sure there are a ton. The, the pre-prohibition work that I've done personally is, you know, all, um, it's all taverns. Like here, you know, you made your own beer and you sold your own beer over the, over the bar. But I, when I spoke with the guy in Louisville, for example, they have a, a, a beer that's called Kentucky Brown, mm. right? And that was a beer kind of a necessity that was made to compete with uh, the German, the, the, the German lagers. It was something that it wasn't high in alcohol and it could be turned over quickly, but it used corn. And they had just recently discovered that recipe. So that is one of the few like original American beer styles and it was gone for a while and now it's back. And one of the things that was distinctive about Kentucky Brown is that it wasn't great. You know, it, <laughs> it wasn't like it was a cheap beer. So they were using, for example, the same barrels. So it had a funky aspect. But it wasn't a funky beer. It was just a beer that sometimes the case got too dirty. But it it kind of informed the flavor. Like, you wouldn't get it and say, oh, this tastes like the kegs are dirty. And you would get it and say, oh, 
this tastes like the kegs are dirty. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it's a routine that I must make a, an analogy to music for almost every one of my interviews. This is kind of like the uh, when, when a band, you know, has a, a lousy bassist, so they crank up the guitar and suddenly they've created a, a, their own sound. It's, it's almost right. about the deficiency that they had to get creative around that makes it, that makes it special. Right. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. And that's what I would love to try the next time I'm up there if I can get it. So let's talk a little bit about your other ventures, or at least two of them, because it sounds like sure. you have quite a few irons in the fire. Tell me about This Is War. Well, This Is War is, uh, it's, please listen to it if you, if, you hear, if you hear my voice. It's not as fun as this, um, but it's probably the best work I've done. It's, I, I, was, I interviewed uh, combat veterans about their experiences. And it's, uh, it's canceled now. It was canceled more about this time last year. So there are no more episodes coming out. But that was my first professional podcast job. And now I, you know, now I kind of make them. I'm, I'm a, like a freelance podcast producer now. So I get to make shows and sell them to people, which is really, really exciting. Wow. But this is where I auditioned for and got. They spent a lot of money making this show sound great and i just you know all of the veterans you know got interviewed in real studios and they sound like they're in the room with you and i'm very proud of the show i'm i'm very sorry that it's over but i'm happy for i'm happy for the other things that i'm doing i'm actually in in the true crime business now because that's how you can make money in podcasting so i've uh I've got some true crime stuff on the fires that I'm very excited about. That is a uh, very popular field. Um, yeah. So, so the other one that I that I that I read about was called "So What's Your Story." Is that one still an ongoing podcast? That is also no longer ongoing. That's. Uh, I think I think COVID COVID was the death of that um, show, but it was already kind of on the rocks. A friend of mine, uh, Stephanie Fowler who's also an author, has been working on her big book. And um, that just came out. That's called Chasing Alice. Her English teacher was murdered. Um, and she wrote the story of the murder and the ensuing investigation. Um, and that's something that she's been working on for years. But uh, between COVID and her pr- promotion schedule, and now my writing and then my promotion schedule i don't know if we'll have uh so what's your story come back up but the idea was to talk to independent authors about their process for of writing the book what what made them want to write but um right now i do have a weekly podcast that's called day drinking on delmarva and we do that every week no matter what i love it so this is war and so what's your story those are not dated podcasts i mean you, you can listen to oh them to yeah today no. and they're just as yeah so i think it's a good show i think it's a real good show and stephanie and i have a really good have really good chemistry it's just it's just we've been so so busy lately did it inform the way that you approach writing your new book um a little bit i'm i've been a professional writer since my first job in journalism you know so since 2004, I've made my living writing. And that informs you more than anything else because you're like, all right, you're, you're more conscious of the need to sit down and do the work. A lot of people that I speak with, a lot of people who are 
uh, writing, who have a different day job and then they're right at night or they write on the weekends. One of the things that they tend to have trouble with is this idea of sitting down even when you don't have anything to say, you know, mm -hmm. um, because when you are a journalist on deadline, you just sit down and you start typing. and You're like, well, I've got to send something in. <laughs> you yeah. know, and what right. you learn after a decade of doing that is once you start typing, you will keep typing and maybe the first hour is garbage, but then you have a good story in there someplace and then you can find it. And so that that's something that I knew going in that made my life a little bit easier. Also, just real quick in this in this last book, I had written a podcast that they decided not to run. So I already had the whole story in my head. I just had to, um, actually they're, they're running it. They're doing something different with it. You're writing a true crime story. Yes. Yes. Um, this is about a, uh, about a reptile cult that uh, two of the members committed. Well, one of the members committed suicide. The other one may or may not have been killed by his girlfriend. Um, and when I say may or may not, what's really interesting is that it's Steve Minio and Barbara Rogers. If you want to look it up, you can look up Sherry Schreiner. She is the uh, cult leader. They've already done one documentary on her. And I'm in There's a documentary that's also coming out in March that I'll be in. But, you know, Sherry Schreiner said your wife is a reptilian and she's going to kill you. And Steven said, go to hell. You're a crazy person. And then his wife put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Wow. So, I mean, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the, that's the, that's the hook. The hook you have that. me hooked. I was going to say, will it be called Lizard King or? No, I know. Right now the, Two on the nose. The working title is uh, Dragged into the Light, the High Price of Exposing Sherry Shriner. It'll be something like that. Dragged into the Light I like because it's both exposing a false prophet, but it's also you know, a little bit of a look at, uh, you know, like the, uh, like the allegory in the cave, allegory of the cave, when they say, if you dragged someone up into the light, they would rather die than see the real truth. Philosophy major. Yeah, I can't help it. You can't. Broken. Uh, you have some great stuff coming up. What, what's, what's, what's new for Beer with Strangers? Well, Beer with Strangers, as I said, is going to be closed until January and my hope is to start it up again sometime in January. But please subscribe. I'm not turning it off. So you can subscribe. And there's a newsletter you can subscribe to. I occasionally I have a website that I also have kind of left abandoned. That's called The State of the Beer. And sometimes people will send me stuff to put up on there. People who want to do a beer blog but don't want to you know, maintain their own blog or whatever. Um, like there are a couple guys who have written for me, and sometimes if I have something to say, I'll write something on there. So it's worth it's worth it's worth at least following because I don't I don't send out an email unless I have something new to say. I don't just try to get people to go to the website. So cool. Well, it was a genuine pleasure to talk to you, Tony. Thank you so much. I had a blast. My thanks to Tony Russo. You can follow him on Twitter at by Tony Russo. His websites are beerwithstrangers.com and stateofthebeer.com. Welcome to the after party. Pull up a Twinkie-shaped inflatable pillow and have another beer.
I'm drinking an Allagash Curio, an 11% Belgian-style golden ale. It's Thanksgiving here in America, so I figured this Maine-produced ale was strong enough to match the rich foods that I've been consuming and get me into the holiday spirit, which it has. It's bubbly, it's dry, biscuity, it makes me happy. So, let me have another sip here. I'm tired. Uh, I don't mean to be a bummer. Maybe you are filled with energy and it's going to bring you down, but I have a nine-month-old, and we just calculated for the last three weeks she's been going into some sort of sleep regression, which means that she wakes up around midnight and won't go to sleep no matter how much we ignore her. Um, She likes to cry. She likes to stand up. Uh, She likes to shake the bars of her crib. It's adorable uh, if you are well-rested, but if you are not, it is difficult. So I am uh, in need of any advice. We've gotten plenty already, including feed her extra before she goes to bed. Avocado is supposed to help. It hasn't, by the way. Uh, exercise, or, you know, lots of action, lots of movement before she goes to bed. We've tried that. And, of course, routine, 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 which we are good at doing, and I've been routinely exhausted. I've got some good upcoming uh, interviews I'm psyched about. Uh, Lucy Korn, an expert on South African beer. We got host AJ Kierens of the 16 Ounce Canvas podcast, which is a really good one about the design element of the beer world. And then brewer Matt Westfall of Counterweight Brewing in Hamden, award winning Counterweight Brewing. So I'm psyched to talk to him as well. It's been many a year that we've spoken. Need to line up some guests after that. This should take me up to about Christmas time, maybe. And so, yeah, got to start getting some invites out there. It's been a wild year, to say the least. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try to go to bed soon. This is lame. Anyway, until next time, sip well. One. Two, three, four.